Hi, my name is Brooke Rodriguez. I'm a Taino mother living in Matinecock territory. Mijuxis. My name is Desiree Kane. I'm a Miwok Two-Spirit. Osio. My name is Mia Beverly. I am from Sand Hill Band of Cherokee and Lenape, and welcome to First Foods. A program made by and for Indigenous people and our allies. Who are ready for a new day for old ways. First Fruits program is produced by Grinding Stone Collective in partnership with Green Feather Foundation and Her Many Voices Foundation, along with important support from community members like you. We have some protocols we'd like to go over with you. Land acknowledgement. We recognize, uphold, and respect Native nations and their life ways above all else as the ruling governance of Turtle Island and Abia Yala. Everyone attending this space must uphold the same. Native knowledge. Lessons learned are not for non-natives to monetize on or repackage as their own. Native knowledge systems belong to the cultural communities they come from and to the guest teachers in our programming. Foraging and harvesting. Always seek permission from tribal communities to forage and harvest. These medicines or foods may be seasonal or being left to replenish themselves. Also respect if the answer is no. Intertribal space. We are all from different nations and regions, so what may be odd or undesirable as food to you might be good to someone else. Respect that and don't insult or belittle. Respect tribal food, land, and medicine sovereignty. Remember that majority of foods are shared by many different tribes, but with different names. Do not try to claim exclusivity or copyright for your own people. It's okay to share the name as you know it. It is not okay to create dissent over a different name. No dissent over blood quantum or otherwise more Indianer than you fighting. Food sovereignty. First people have the rights to hunt, fish, forage, and harvest in their traditional territories. It is unacceptable to critique traditional or contemporary dietary styles as a non-native. Please put any questions that you have in the chat. The last 30 minutes of class, we often invite attendees to come on and interact with our instructors. Disclaimer, First Foods is for educational purposes only. Before using or ingesting any herb or plant for medicinal or culinary purposes, please consult a physician, medical herbalist, or suitable professional. Juxus, welcome everyone to First Foods. Uh, my name is Desiree Kane. I'm a Miwok Two Spirit, and welcoming everyone to another First Foods program. Tonight is Transitional Foods for Spirit and Family with Emily Vass, 
She is Lenape and Choctaw. She is a death worker who helps families with grief and death support. She's an author, speaker, and community leader. She's a mother of two neurodiverse teenagers, and she's a wife to a career active duty service member. She spent much of her 18 years of marriage as an acting single parent as her husband has been uh, on deployment for a big portion of their marriage. Emily's work focuses on respite care, education, and advocacy for the dying and their future grievers. So uh, welcome again, Emily. Welcome, Mia. We got Brooks here. It's her birthday. She might not want to talk about it, but it is. Um, so I'm going to pass it to Mia, and uh, we'll get it going. Hi, I'm Mia. As you know, um, I'm from the Sand Hill Band of Cherokee Wenape, uh, OCO. Um, uh, Emily hosts, um, Emily here with hosts um, events, workshops, and retreats all over the country for grievers, death workers, and funeral professionals. To find out more about her work, please consider um, checking out her site, which we will drop in the chat so you can check it out there, and her Instagram, and she's on Clubhouse. So again, we're going to drop all that in the chat. And um, by the way, First Foods program is made possible through a partnership with Grinding Stone Collective, Green Feather Foundation, and Her Many Voices Foundation. Now we can um, kick it off. Hi everyone, thank you for coming tonight. I am so excited to share what I know about food and how we can better support our grievers so we can better support the caregivers in our lives and how to do that by just returning to basics really. So thank you ladies for that wonderful introduction. This is probably gonna be a little bit different than some of the other classes you've done. It's an entirely different topic. And I want to take a little bit of time to just tell you a little bit about myself, my family, our relationship to food, and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, again, thank you, ladies, for hosting this and for inviting me into this sacred space. So as the women announced, I am part of the Chahata and Lenny Lenape nations out of Oklahoma. However, I grew up all over the country. I was raised um, by a bicultural couple um, in Ohio, in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. I moved out to Phoenix at 14, and there I was lovingly adopted by so many of my peers who are from the Todd Auto Nation, um, just south of Chandler. And so I have, my heart is still out there in District 5 with so many of them. And so I went to college in Oklahoma and that's really where I got to reconnect with um, my heritage and my culture. See, by most accounts, my family was completely removed from their families. And that's because my grandfather, he was taken at the age of six into residential schools and then he survived that experience. He went on to Haskell, that's where he met my grandmother. And then after graduating Haskell, as many of you know, they were sent out to relocation areas. Back then they only had three relocations 
areas, Seattle, St. Louis, and Denver. And so my grandparents were sent to St. Louis. After that, my grandfather landed a job in Ohio. So that was pretty far away from their family. And that just continued to sever the connection that they had had. And so with that being said, it's taken me, here I am well into my 40s, for me to really understand why my connection to food has been so twisted and confused. And that was because of how my grandparents were raised in residential school with food being withheld, right? And in, in them not being worthy to have food when they needed it, when they wanted it, of not getting the proper nutrition that they would have had better access to if they were living at home with their families. Now, um, I also have the unique situation of my father, um, undiagnosed autistic, he had a lot of food aversions. So when you combine that, you can see how that generational trauma compounds and it comes in. So by the age of 13, I was full-blown anorexic going into high school. My father actually shamed me that I was not very successful at it. And then my eating habits turned to bulimia and it was a mess. And so I am super passionate about helping other people heal their relationship to food because it took me almost 20 years of really hard work and being loved on by my native relations and teaching me where all of these horrible things had come from. And I didn't even have a language or an awareness to connect all of that. Really a lot of that healing started when I was in college at Oklahoma State, being loved on many of the members of the Ponca tribe. And so my heart is also with them as I used to powwow with a lot of my peers there. And their aunties taught me so many wonderful things. My grandmother, um, who still resides in Oklahoma, it wasn't really until she was in her 50s that she felt it was a safe space and time for her to reclaim her heritage and start connecting to tribal preservation. And she has led the way being part of the Delaware War Mothers there in Copan, Oklahoma. And so we are super proud of um, my grandmother being able to reclaim that and to teach me as I was becoming a young mother Still, I was very disconnected from my family because I married a sailor, which meant I've lived all over the world. And um, I'm currently in the Florida Panhandle on Muscogee Creek land, and I'm closest to the porch bands of um, natives here. And so unfortunately, because of COVID, I haven't been able to connect with any of them since I've landed here. Now, um, I would love to talk directly to the things that are on your heart as far as grief, death, and dying. So I can talk forever about those things. While we're talking and discussing these things, my daughter, who she might be a little shy to be on camera. Do you want to come on, sweetheart? She's going to wait, probably. You might see her come back and forth. Her name is Alyssa, and she loves fruit, food prep. We have been working together for about four years in the kitchen um, as her neurodivergent mind has a lot of aversions to food. And one of the things that I work really hard on educating in my family and in my community is just returning to basics. 
the simple, simple things. You can see in the background, we have a lot of whole foods. So being urban and being constantly in chaos, whether that be moving every 18 months because of my husband's position in the military or just because of my children's neurodiversity. Cooking is a difficult thing in our house. And so we tend to go with very simple, basic, and I try to teach my kids, if it makes a lot of noise when you open it, it's not healthy. We shouldn't put it in our bodies. We need to stay as basic as possible. We try to highlight when we've lived, we were blessed to live in Oahu for four years and um, turned my kids onto pineapple because that's everywhere. Interesting fact though, pineapple is not from Hawaii. Did you guys know that? I had no idea. It's actually from Brazil. It ended up in Hawaii because of a shipwreck. So I know all kinds of fun things like that. But right now what we're doing, my daughter is cutting up some strawberries for fruit salad and we're getting some other fruit prepped for that. We have a lot of different containers. One of the things, whether you're supporting children with food aversions, whether you're supporting caregivers who don't wanna take the time to eat themselves, or if you are a griever who doesn't wanna eat, turn that off. If you're supporting a griever who doesn't want to eat, the biggest thing that I can suggest to you is prepping that food for them, making it super accessible and easy and presenting it in a multiple of ways. So at the end of the class, we'll kind of show you how we're doing that. Right now, we're just doing a lot of our chopping. There's not a whole lot of new vegetables and fruits out there. So we have just your basic things that we'll talk about at the end. But before I get started talking about hydration and dehydration, I'm curious, does anybody have any questions? I love being interactive. So... <laughs> Let's see. Oh, we have someone checking in from uh, Hawaii. Well, we actually have a comment um, in the chat, which is from Malia. This says, aloha from Hawaii. Mahalo for sharing that about pineapples. One of the things I dislike is when you go to a restaurant and they categorize pizza with pineapple on it as Hawaiian pizza. Very good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, none of us were taught that Hawaii's, or you know, that pineapple doesn't come from Hawaii. It it, mm -hmm. it does flow there, but it's actually from Brazil. So, and we would love to hear more. I know in Hawaii we eat a lot. Um, the food is really um, infused with a lot of Asian, and so it was very difficult for me. I had a lot of questions about wait, what's traditional. Hawaiian and what's Samoan and what's Fiji and what's Asian. It was very confusing for me. And so over there, it was really affirmed. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, I'm confused because someone explained this to me. So of course, happy to share about the pineapples. So let's talk. The thing some people don't know about pineapples is that it's actually a natural diuretic. So mm -hmm. It can be really helpful in a few ways. In pregnancy, a lot of pregnant women may need that natural diuretic. Their bodies, 
everybody, everybody will hold on to water if it's not getting replenished enough. But pregnant women, I've seen this the most in. Um, and so you can use pineapple juice as a natural diuretic to kind of flush your system. So it's important to know that because a lot of people who do like pineapple juice, you want to limit it if you're already having a problem with hydration. So many of us have been taught hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. We know that we, most of us were taught eight glasses a day. That's kind of changed. Now the standard is half of your weight in ounces. So let me check the eggs real quick. They still need a little bit more time. So um, the thing there is finding your water container that you like. And so I'm going to grab mine. This is one, so I was totally germaphobic way before COVID. So I like this one because it covers the top. But so this is 24 ounces. So then I know I have to fill this up four times a day. Now, the interesting thing is it's hard to keep track of that, right? And a lot of us are like, well, let's just chug it. We go to the gym, we chug it, we're out. The problem is a lot of us are drinking our water wrong and it's doing more damage than good. So take a second to think about that. Did you know you could drink your water wrong? I was totally shocked when I learned that a few years ago. So let's talk about ways that you can drink your water correctly. One of the main ways is to sit down. When you're actually standing up, now I don't, I'm not a doctor, I do not understand the physiology part of this, a doctor taught me and I've lived by it. Your kidneys are not in the proper positioning to work as they should. So you should literally sit down and sip. We should not chug our water. Sipping is super important because what happens is you actually need the alkaline saliva in your mouth to be escorted into your stomach because it needs to neutralize all of those stomach acids down there. So if you're chugging your water, you're flooding your stomach and you're not getting all the natural benefits that your body is made to give you. Also cold water. Most of us have, have accepted this. We don't like it. Most of us have heard over the time that room temperature water or warm water is better. And we aren't given a lot of information on why that is. And what it is, is for a few reasons. Cold water is gonna constrict the blood vessels in your body and your body has to take the time and the energy to heat up that water to room temperature or to body temperature before it can do anything with it. If you're already dehydrated, your body's stressed out trying to figure out how it's gonna fix this problem. And so now if you just chugged cold water, you've introduced a whole new problem to your system. So did anybody know those facts? Were those new ones for you? It's pretty interesting to me, especially living in Hawaii and being from the desert. You would think of all places, somebody, some auntie somewhere would have passed down that wisdom. Never heard it before. So when we talk about hydration, we have to know about dehydration. We have to know what are the signs. The confusing thing is, even though I could give you a list of dehydration signs and symptoms to watch for, they're so basic, they're hidden, 
people can justify their reasons, right? So if we think about our brain, we have 90% of our brain is water. So when we're dehydrated, we're going to start experiencing things like memory lapse, memory loss, headaches. And what do other people attribute headaches to? Caffeine withdrawal. They're susceptible to migraines, right? Like it's a part of life. They, they don't stop to think. It could be something as basic as dehydration. They could all already think it's like, oh, I've been at the computer too long. I have a headache for all kinds of different reasons. And we always want to treat every disease, every discomfort, treat it with water first because 75% of people are dehydrated and they don't even know it. And the truth is by the time you become so dehydrated that you're willing or ready to seek medical help, things have already gone down pretty quick and you're going to need IV fluids for that. So when we're taking care of anybody, when we're taking care of ourselves, which we are women, let's face it, we're usually the last one on the list, right? Hydration is the simplest and best way to take care of ourselves so that we can continue to function. Now we all know another super easy way to check our hydration is by the color and smell of our urine. Now I could talk way too much about digestive issues and elimination waste and urine. So if anybody wants to privately have that conversation, let me know because you can learn so much from that. When we think about our urine output, I just want you to remember a few things. We want it to be as light as possible and as odorless as possible. So when you start to see the darker colors coming in, you wanna stop and think. Are you on a medication that's going to cause that? If you don't know, call your doctor and ask him. Google, Google your medication. See if that's a symptom. It's possible, but you still want to be aiming for the lightest colors. And then also, you want to take into consideration that the frequency of your urine. A lot of people, whether you're grieving, whether you're preparing for your death, will stop with the hydration because they don't want to be going to the bathroom. They don't wanna ask for help. They don't wanna inconvenience their caregivers. So it is really important that we give them that hydration assistance by constantly offering them their beverages. Even with elders, of course, check with the main caregiver and check with the medical team. But you're going to want to, even juices, that's going to be something that you still, you want to be aware of diabetes. But oftentimes, doctors are going to recognize it's more important to get fluids than, you know, medication can always be adjusted if that's what they need to do. So hydration questions before I go any further. I think we might have a few comments. I'm going to check on the eggs while we do that. <laughs> We do have a comment in the chat from, um, I think it's Brooke, but um, she mentioned that the traditional name of uh, pineapple is Yayama, uh, since it was already in the Caribbean islands pre-colonization, but indigenous to our mother nations in South America. So I thought that was interesting. I didn't know about that. Yes. 
That is good. It is important and it's so important to know that we really, we were all taught wrong information in so many ways, right? Like it blows my mind as an educated woman who's gone back and, and I've tried to learn and I've tried to say, hey, what's, what's this? What's that? Why this? Why that? I have so many questions, right? It was hard for me to ask questions as a kid because I was supposed to sit still and be quiet and be seen and, and not heard or shown or anything like that. And so it's interesting to me now looking back and as I raise my daughter and as I help her with her education and, and with her projects to help her understand this is wrong. This is the information you need for the test, but this is wrong. You can put this down and this is the conversation we're going to have with your instructors over it. And I really encourage and love when I see um, her stepping up and doing that on her own. That's the proudest mama moment ever um, when we do that. I know um, just a few years ago, what is it, about fifth grade when they start doing their um, Native American projects? Let me tell you, I shredded that paper when I came home. And uh, but it was, it was really fun to start to teach her because she was at the place where she could start to learn um, the matrial society and to understand, right? And like, I love teaching her about the fact that like in our, in our community, the women are in charge. Like I did see my grandmother be a very strong um, family head for us, but it was still met with a lot of opposition um, as, my grandfather and my dad, they did, like they tried to blend in. They wanted, it was for a safety factor, right? So absolutely. So when we think about our relation to food and when we think to our parents and grandparents and what their relationship was to food, it's, it's a little bit easier for me to start to make some changes and to also do a lot of healing and grieving because I grew up with all of these food addiction issues thinking I was the healthy one because I didn't choose drugs and alcohol. Well, let me tell you, food addiction is just as damaging. It's just as harmful and it can ruin just as many relationships. So the only difference is, you know, an addict, an alcoholic, they can change their playground and change their playmates, but a food addict, they still have to go to the grocery store and to the market to get the food, right? For their family. So that's kind of a tricky thing. And that's something that I think our community needs to talk a little bit more about because when we come into things that are really difficult to talk about, when we talk about death and dying and managing, healthy management of grief. Like, what is that? How do we do that? We don't talk about the food issues because a lot of people are going to, they're gonna go on one end of the spectrum or the other. They're either going to overindulge and really just destroy themselves with bad food choices, or they're gonna completely stop taking in food and water. And both are super dangerous especially when we take into consideration a lot of our relatives are on medications for their blood sugar, right? And a lot of them are on medications for other medical things that we don't know anything about, but we know that their medication regimen is important. 
Hydration is also another big thing for their medication. A lot of their medication is water soluble. So if they don't have enough water in their system or if they're drinking, if they're chugging their water just to take it with their pills, they're flushing that pill and it's gonna be expelled as waste and they're not even gonna get the benefits of it. So lots of good things to think about along that way. So I am gonna pull the eggs out of the oven, they're just about done, which fun fact, um, anthropologists have proven that chickens were here about a hundred years before that confused Italian idiot showed up. So we can always have a little bit of protein. Eggs is one of the ways that's a staple in our house. And um, I'm gonna show you one of the simple and easy ways that you can prepare it and offer it when you take food to those who are caregiving and those who are grieving. So we'll look and see if there's any more questions while I do that. Yeah, actually, um, I have a quick question. Um, what brought you to death doula work? Um, can you talk about that? Oh, of course. So I often explain it as I grew up in death's shadow. Um, I was always a part of it with my dad's family. They always included us. They never hid anything from us um, as far as that goes. I was super young. Um, I remember in one of the courses I took, they asked, well, you know, when's the first time you experienced a funeral? I couldn't remember. I could tell you the first time I prepared a body. I could tell you the first time I handled the funeral director by myself. I could tell you the first time that I prepared a body for viewing. Um, so that part of our culture came through. And so when I was doing my undergraduate work, I was super interested in palliative care. At that time, over 20 years ago, you had to be a registered nurse to go into palliative care. Well, I was finishing up my education. I was anxious to start my family and I didn't wanna go back to get another degree. Um, so I've always sought out, I have a 20 year mental health career behind me and I've always sought out the grievers, the future grievers. It's just where my heart was because I understood it. Um, I think the first time I volunteered with hospice is when like they asked, they're like, why are you here? Most people don't do this. Like they were always curious why the volunteers showed up at hospice. I actually sought out hospice of Oklahoma city. Um, because I wanted them on my resume and I wanted to go in and do their work. I was thankful for the experiences that my grandfather had had with hospice. And they said, we don't have an internship program. I said, well, you do now. You're 20 minutes from OU and the fact that you don't have one's a problem. So I'm going to be your first intern and we're going to do this. And they were like, okay, this kid's not leaving and she apparently wants to work. So <laughs> I, I did that. Um, Throughout my mental health career, I did fall in love with elder care. Um, like I said, my husband moves us every um, 18 to 36 months. And so I get a chance to recreate my career and my wardrobe, which is super fun every time. And um, I fell in love with elder care. I fell in love with this part of, I knew how to take care of them and I knew how to have the conversations that nobody else was having. They needed that safe, protected space to talk about all the things that were happening, that their, their relatives, their kids were like, stop talking like that. We're, you know, we're not preparing for death. It is super important to 
prepare for death. And that's the thing, like, why are people acting like we're going to get out of this thing alive? We're not, we're all dying. We're all going to bury somebody. And society hasn't given us a really good model. And so if we return to some of our traditional thoughts and our traditional ways, that is super healing to have those ceremonies and those customs to get us through it. So um, once we decided my husband was going to start preparing for retirement, that gave me the availability to return to death work. Um, the more trendy term that you see out there is a death doula. I really don't like that being a member of the BIPOC community. Um, doula, the root of it, tends to be somebody who was forced into caregiving. I willingly walk into this space. I'm here because I have a heart of service and because I want to advocate for the people who are too weak to continue advocating for themselves. Um, in the Choctaw Nation, the bone picker is what they would call traditionally, that's what my position would be. Um, I'm very vocal about the fact that my medicine is for my family and for my community. And what I do there as a death worker is very different than what I do out in town and with my clients who come to me. Um, so that's a, it's a good distinction to talk about um, out in the community when I'm hired, what I'm doing is I'm helping people have those really uncomfortable conversations. They don't know how to start. They don't know how to finish. They don't know what questions to ask. Sometimes they need an advocate at the hospital because things aren't going the way the patient or the family wants. And when a family is in their grief, when they're in their chaos, when they're in their confusion, they need to be in that. They don't need to have a crash course in being a family social worker. Um, that's just setting everybody up for problems. So yes, yeah, so that's a little bit about how I got started in there and why I'm super passionate about it. I'm also super passionate about raising up any other indigenous death workers because we, most of us have been around traumatic death, crisis, grief. We've seen the effects of unhealthy grief you know, that's what's really destroyed so many relationships. It's, it's that tipping point for um, tripping up our sobriety and our community. And just, so I am super passionate about raising up other indigenous men and women, two-spirited who can come alongside me, help me also call out a lot of the other um, death workers in the space, because there's a lot of certification programs out there that are nothing more than cultural appropriation. And you better believe this mouth is out there making them aware that that's not what needs to be happening. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, and just going off of what, like you just mentioned, and um, and um, as a death worker too, um, I'm wondering how those certification courses um, lead to appropriation. Exactly. So here's the interesting thing about being, um, and I do a lot of education on this as far as death work. Um, right now, here in the United States, I'm not sure where everybody's checking in from, but right now here in the United States, there is no certification process. There's that is required. That has not yet happened. So literally anybody can wake up one day, walk out their door and say, I'm a death doula. There are so many problems with that on one hand, right? Like it's dangerous to walk into that space. Um, a lot of the classes that I've been a part of that I've taught with, 
People are there because they've had one or two transition experiences. That is not enough to be in the sacred space with families. And so I do a lot of education on how to research and find and to connect and place with a proper death worker because now here's the, the double-edged sword part of it, right? In our community, a lot of us can take these skills that we've been groomed up with, right? That have, have been taught to us by our family and that are completely natural and normal to us no amount of education is going to teach somebody that. So um, it is my hope that I am able to develop a certification process that when this country decides you have to have an education requirement and a certification requirement and pay dues every year, that we're going to be protected under the religious protections that we were given in 1976-78 and that indigenous death workers won't have to abide by that through our religious safeties. So that's my hope, that's my advocacy um, with that portion of it. But yeah, great question on that. Yeah, thank you for answering that. Of course, are there any other? Let's see, how are we doing on time? We're doing good. Any other questions? You can see Alyssa going back and forth. She's not my talker. She's my very stoic one, um, but she loves, she's gotten all of this fruit um, set up. Are you ready to start plating some of it? You guess so? Do you want to come say hi? I was telling her she was super shy about coming on, but I said, you know, there might be some other young adults who are watching and might participate when they see you. And so she didn't know, but so this is Alyssa. Can you say hi? And she is, she's also a competitive athlete. And so nutrition is super important in her life. Why don't you go ahead and grab a few of the containers and bring them over with a spoon. And let's grab a bigger bowl. Here we go. So one of the things when you're preparing to take food, because that's, for a lot of us, that's very common. We take food, we prepare food, and we want to be mindful of what these people are actually going to want. Sometimes they're not going to want anything. So if you can you know, bring the whole food just to leave so that it's pretty and sitting on the table. That's an option. And then making, oh, Alyssa has hidden all of the amazing fruits in here. What all is in here, kiddo? <laughs> so we have, we've cut up watermelon. Watermelon is super amazing in the summer because it's mostly water, helps with hydration. And, you know, that's the other thing. Go ahead and dump this in here. You got a spoon so we can mix it all together and then we'll plate it. So when we're doing fruit salads, when we're adding the berries, look how amazing that big berry is. Full of water and amazingness. And it's gonna help all the fiber that we're getting from the apples, the oranges. That's also gonna help with elimination. Like I, I said, you have some bananas in here too. That's good. And so what it is, is you really, hydration is gonna help with that elimination process because disgusting fact, your gut can hold between 20 and 25 pounds of waste. Now let's think about that. If your body has already decided that this stuff is not useful and it's in your gut and you're not properly hydrated to get it out of your system, 
what's happening? That waste is just sitting there being reabsorbed into your body, making you feel horrible. Think about some of those terms that we use in our societies full of feel like there's a reason it's waste being reabsorbed into your system. So I can also help teach, um, if anyone's curious, about proper elimination. There's things like bathroom posture that help along with hydration to empty, empty yourself out. So I think that's about good. You want to get the little containers? Yes, I'm strawberries. And strawberries are your favorite? You're kind of hiding off camera here. And so she moves. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a smile and a giggle. That's good. So Alyssa, actually, Alyssa was um, 12 the first time you got to go home for powwow, weren't you? Yeah. So she had her naming ceremony super late. Um, my son, he was nine months old. We brought him home from Spain, but unfortunately her dad wasn't able to come to powwow until she was 12. So she didn't have her naming ceremony. And we did lose um, Miss Bonnie Thaxton, love of our life, and the woman who named Alyssa. We lost her this year to complications of COVID. And so just take a moment to honor her, huh? Yeah. Okay, go ahead and we'll get those plates. And so while she's doing that, and while we start, protein is something that's going to be super important for grievers, caregivers. And so, yeah, you can bring a few of all of them over. So one of the things that we do, look at how cute is that? These little egg squares, I make them in a brownie tin. Just bake them in the oven. These are actually egg whites. Um, my family, being modern, you know, we have issues, food allergies, egg issues. I am a bariatric patient, so my food needs are a little different. But what you can do with these, so these are just super simple that you can pack up. They're easy to have. If somebody's not feeling like they're hungry, convincing them to eat just a little something is a lot easier. So, and this is, um, these egg squares, they can actually stay in your fridge for seven days, no problem. Um, my children and husband who are picky will eat them very quickly. They'll throw them in um, the tia real quick and make an omelet in the morning or a breakfast burrito with them. I prefer to do a little bit more of a quiche sometimes, but you know, every week we change up the presentation just a little bit. So egg squares, super easy. And the kids actually like them. They can just hold them. Finger, finger food is always good. Even though my kids are teenagers, finger food is still really good. <laughs> So, okay, so we can do, let me see, do you have one of the other containers? Yeah, go ahead and grab some of those. And maybe can you bring the tomatoes and cucumbers and do some kebabs? So she's going to plate this amazing fruit salad. Look at this. How awesome is all of that? Nature Skittles, right? I like that the first time I heard that. I thought that was pretty clever actually. So we play in our house. Like I said, I have a four ounce stomach. So here's my tiny containers. And then here we get these ones. 
And then, so just if you do a cup, this is really a good portion because if you think about it, if you're providing that food for a caregiver, they can just snack on this. And then the good thing is like, usually when we eat a whole something, we're beating ourselves up over it. They can be super proud of themselves for getting a variety of their fruits in if they eat a whole cup, even if it takes them all morning to just nibble on it. It's okay. It's going to help with everything they're missing right now. Because don't we all know when we're in our grief, it's hard enough to find air for our lungs and it's hard enough to get up. Um, another tip I like to give people who are supporting grievers in their life, we don't know what to do for them. And they're not really going to be able to tell us. They're trying to figure out how to get through their day and all the logistic red tape there is to taking care of all the bureaucracy that's in our lives. I encourage you, just pick up some fruit, go to their house and do what we're doing right now. Wash the food, prep the food, plate it, store it for them. The most caring and loving thing you can do for the grievers in your life is to show up. It's not to say anything. Keeping your mouth shut is probably the best thing. Just say, hey, I'm gonna prepare this. Why don't you go hop in the shower? Let them do that. Open the blinds for them. Use your observation skills when you're in their house to just start that load of laundry, do that load of dishes. You know, maybe they didn't feel like taking a shower, but they would probably recognize the only way they're gonna get you to leave their house is if they hop in the shower. <laughs> and then you can use your investigative skills to kind of see what they need help with. Or um, I know for me, while I've been single parenting or the most loving thing that anybody has ever done for me is a load of laundry or a load of dishes without being asked, right? Like that, I just, it makes me feel loved and seen and it takes one of those daily tasks off of my plate. So, yeah. Now I also have, if we got the, um, while Alyssa is doing that, Let's see, did we get the worksheets sent out? If anybody wants to talk about those or do we want to do questions while I keep cutting some vegetables or do we want to talk about worksheets? I like hearing other people talk. It's weird to hear me running my mouth the whole time. <laughs> um, yeah, hey. oh, go ahead. Okay, I'm not sure what the worksheet is. Could you maybe tell us about that? Uh, let me grab that. I'm so short. It's all the way on the other side. Okay. So I have created this comfort care plan to help families. And so I sent some of the worksheets out of that comfort care plan. And so I'm sure you'll get them in, in the email after the class or, or they're sitting there. So one of the things that I've created, this one is called my helpers list. And it is simply a place to collect all of your thoughts. So it's gonna give a place for you to write the name of the people in your life. It's also going to, it says type of support. Maybe you know somebody who enjoys doing the grocery shopping or the meal prep. You can write that down. It has their phone number, it has their availability, and more specifically, it has the question, do they know I need help? Hmm. 
because a lot of us, we've been conditioned to tell people we're fine. Stop doing that. When we tell people we're fine, we're telling them we don't need you, go away. And then in a few days or in a few weeks, we're really pissy because why is nobody helping me? And why is nobody mm -hmm. checking in on me? Mm -hmm. So be brutally honest, stop saying fine. My personal favorite responses are, that's a loaded question. Thanks for asking. Are you sure you wanna know? Um, <laughs> other days I'll say choosing good, right? That tells somebody like, oh, I really don't wanna talk about it but I'm not fine, right? Like I'm, I'm choosing to be okay right now. So a helper's list is a good way to start thinking about that. If you're entering, if you're a future griever, if somebody in your life has a recent diagnosis and you're kind of struggling or you're new to the caregiving role, that's a great one to start with. Another one is called um, help tree activated. And so I've got given, oh, I've given the directions up here, kind of some things to think about and spaces to write down. A lot of us have this natural membership to different communities, right? We have our family, we have our work, and we have our community. So some of us might be students. So we have connections there that our family may not even know about. So this is a good place to write that down. And then let's see activating your help tree. So this is a honeycomb list for you to put the top helpers in your life. You can grab them right off of that other help tree that we have. And I'm gonna show you. So I filled one of mine out so we could talk about it. And what I've done on mine is, oh, let me put a page behind it so we can see better. Okay. So what I've done here is I put the name and the state because I don't know anybody that lives near me, hardly. <laughs> so I put the name of the person, the state that they're in, and then their relationship to me. And then I've numbered them in order of importance, right? And so what I've done, let me just share. So for example, number one, my best friend, Phoenicia, she's in Maryland. She knows everything about me. She knows more than she wants to know about my children and I. She's the top person to coordinate efforts if things go wrong and I can no longer communicate. My husband may even defer to her in a lot of situations. And then the second person is going to be someone, Morgan, she's 20 minutes away. My kids are super comfortable with her. And my biggest fear is that my kids are gonna end up in foster care if something happens to me and their dad's not around. So I am super proactive in leaving instructions so that that will not happen. Um, and so Morgan is also great at coordination and the kids are comfortable spending the night with her. Super important for people to know if they're coordinating care for my kids. Um, the third person is going to be um, an auntie that they have in Georgia, someone else that my kids are super comfortable spending overnights with or being in the car with. And that third person, Deborah, she and her husband can support my husband if anything were to happen to me. A lot of us know our partners. 
may only take help from a very few select people, right? So it's important that I identify who his support needs to be. Fourth, my mother would be to know that she's coming in fourth, but that's where she's on my list. And I put her there and I put why. She is a recent widow. She's not gonna be able to help with the chaos coordination and the confusion if something happens to me. So she's fourth on the list. I also put the helpful hint that she works for the airlines and she can coordinate um, for people to get where they need to go on buddy passes, right? So I'm putting extra helpful hints on the back of this sheet because even though Phoenicia knows everything about me, if something were to go wrong, she it's going to take her a minute to get her senses about her. So that's why I lay all of this out. Five is a childhood friend who can support my mother and who is available. He, even though my kids don't know him, he sees them as nieces and nephews. And he and his husband have the flexibility and the freedom of finances and schedule of time to do anything that's needed. And so he's an important person to have on my honeycomb list. And then six, how crazy is this? The very last person is my husband. Why is that? Because he's hardly ever in the country. <laughs> like, we don't know how long it's going to take to get a hold of him, first of all. And he's currently stationed six to seven hours away from us. So it's going to be kind of chaotic for him to try to do things when he's trying to get home to the kids. And like I said, seven hours if he's actually boots on the ground in the country. Um, it may take him a few days to get home. But this is just a super helpful thing to have laid out and the whole book actually, all kinds of thought collectors that I've helped just over, you know, my whole career watching families struggle in the chaos of dealing with diagnosis, preparing for death's journey, being a death companion and, and how stressful that is, is loving our people into and through their death, right? Like we need to do this type of stuff while we're healthy and while we're thinking of it. So, yes, we'll see if we have any questions while I grab some vegetables to start getting ready. Oh, do you have the tomatoes and the cucumbers over there? Yes, so Alyssa's already on the tomato cucumber kebabs, which are so fun, especially for little ones. Because, you know, that's the other thing. When there's little kids in the house, our caregivers are sometimes so busy and stressed out handling all the other things. We just kind of shove food at the kids, right? Like, no holds bars. Take all the snacks. Just while I do this, right? And we don't want to add stress and trauma and we wanna have healthy options available for them. So that's another important thing. When you take food to a family, think about the kids in the house. What is easy and accessible to them? What is super easy for the adult in the house to hand off? I've always enjoyed um, supporting a lot of the military families that we're with um, by giving. And it's funny because a lot of people have told me they're like, nobody else brought food for the kids. I always thought that was strange that nobody thought about that. 
right? Like, why didn't you throw some applesauce in? Why didn't you throw in? Why didn't you make the mac and cheese and the nuggets? It's it's not the healthiest, but it's better than like them getting into the bag of chocolate chips in the cabinet, which that's what I used to feed my little brother for breakfast because my parents didn't do breakfast. Um, so <laughs> my poor little brother got bowls of chocolate chips. <laughs> So how did your reconnection with your heritage like inform the death work that you do now? And what does food have to do with death? I think a lot of times people will think, well, I don't know. I, you don't usually associate death in food, but I, I think that there's some like cultural taboos where I don't know, you want, don't want to talk about it too much. But I think it's really interesting that, you know, you've talked about your own reconnection. You've talked about the ways that your upbringing has informed your approach just to life. But then you also do work that is just really delicate and complicated and people are in a vulnerable stage of their humanity, you know? So like, what, what does your heritage have to do with that? And why is food part of that for you? Oh, excellent question. So first of all, I think a lot of us struggle to recognize our unhealthy relationship with food and where it comes from. And when we don't know how to grieve in healthy ways, we misdirect that energy. We think, right, like we overeat, right? And we justify that. Well, but we can't let the food go to waste. Because how many of us grew up being told, don't let the food go to waste, right? And then also thinking about, um, so for me, my healing journey with, with my anorexia and with my bulimia, and you know, I've been all over the place. I, I was up to 300 pounds before a medical condition said I needed to have stomach surgery. And then that helped, um, that helped my physical response to, to want to eat, like I couldn't eat anymore was the thing. But that coupled with me learning about whole foods, right? And thinking back to my ancestors, my ancestors knew how to read their bodies. If they were working and they were hungry, they ate, right? Like having this specific time of when to eat, how to eat, and having all of these social constructs of eating and overeating, those were all unhealthy colonized things that were impressed upon my parents and grandparents, right? Like my granddad at boarding school, right? He didn't get to eat when he was hungry and he had to eat what rotten food was prepared for him. So then when he had a family and he had a little bit of disposable income, sweets and sugars was how he showed love. That's how he enforced that, right? But then he also struggled with alcoholism. So there was times that there wasn't food. And so even as he was raising my dad and his siblings, the, there was always this twisted relationship, right? So for me, as I learned to reclaim my heritage and I learned of the trauma I learned what generational trauma was for my family. It connected. It gave me the time and space to forgive because like 
my dad was the best dad he could be, right? Is it completely messed up to think about, you know, I, when I would get punished, he would punish me from sugar. He would punish me from sweets. Well, what th that messes with a kid, right? Like it doesn't make sense, right? And then, um, so when I was in high school out there in Chandler, um, the way that I showed love to my peers, I had a job, I had a paycheck, I had nothing to spend my money on, I was a kid, right? I would pay for everybody's lunch because that's how I loved them. That's, I provided the food for them, right? So like, it is very intriguing to me for me to look at my personal history, my family lineage and see how this food connection. And even my grandmother, she told me, she says, she's like, I remember one of my first memories with her is she told me my legs look like upside down beer balls. And I was maybe in like elementary school. And it was just like, I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea. Let me tell you how many hours of therapy I've spent on that one, right? <laughs> that would be said to a child. But, you know, it was interesting because I, I was raised like around all these beautiful, gorgeous, tiny little girls. And I, my grandmother told me, she's like, you have a different body because of who you are, like accept it. And she was, she was tough love trying to teach me then, but that kind of fed into my dysmorphia of body and food and all of that. And so as I've been able to reconnect and really recognize like my ancestors ate what was available, they ate whole foods. That's what my body needs. And so it's given me the motivation to stay with it and to be healthier. And then I see it so much in grieving families. They just, they don't know what to do. So they cook, right? And they don't know how to deal with those be comfortable emotions, but uh, grease and butter fix a lot of, it distracts you. It distracts you. It's not that it fixes it, it distracts you. And we're confused because we think love is giving that cobbler, right? And so it's important to teach our kids that the healthy first foods and to teach them like we can be in these big emotions and that's okay too. So you had another question in there. What was the other question? Um, how did your connection fra uh, frame your understanding and then what does food have to do with it? So, yeah, so, you know, and then as I've gotten into, I never thought I would be a runner, but learning, having to learn healthy coping skills, using running as medicine, connecting myself around people who are healthy, right? Going back and dancing in the arena, right? I hadn't done that since college. I hadn't been around a powwow circuit since college. And so coming back to the mainland and being able to connect, like that's a sacred space and to prepare yourself as a dancer, to be in the arena. Like there's a lot, you don't just show up and go in the arena, right? Like I have to, you know, for me, I, I had to get myself right and I had to be that model for my kids. And so, yeah. Um, we actually have someone who has their hand raised um i see i think uh their name is larita would you like to come up and speak and yeah. hi yes it's, it's actually i i didn't actually have a question but i just wanted to make a comment um 
kind of similar to um, Emily's about how um, when the when the other um, lady was saying how how does food relate to death um, and she kind of covered what I was going to say but yeah I was going to say kind of uh, people use food as um, you know comfort during death but it's very important like Emily was bringing out to put um, nutritious and good food into your body um, other than just you know people want to reach for like say if somebody said and they said oh I a box of chocolates or um, something like that but it's people people grieve and part of their grief they food is a big part of that and I was just I was just trying to comment along those lines to agree with um, Emily. Thank you Larita yes and you know the other thing is it's also why when our dying stop taking food we struggle so much because if we have paired the idea of love with food, it is super hard for us to accept our dying are going to naturally stop their food and water intake. And that's a big emotional thing that I work with families to help prepare them is we talk about when is appropriate to stop food and water intake and talk about their state's options as far as end of life choices. And that's one of the, the hardest things because at the end of life, when we choose to stop nutrition and hydration, it's still gonna take seven to 10 days for a person to naturally transition. So when you think about the caregivers, when you think about the spouses who have spent the entire relationship loving on somebody, through food, it is physically painful for them to watch their loved ones stop taking food and water, right? Has anybody had that experience? So yeah, Larita, do you wanna share? My father had just passed November the 24th and it was, um, I didn't, we didn't suspect that it was COVID at all. As a matter of fact, he, he, he had issues before with his, he had a catheter in. And so we were thinking, okay, he had the, um, he would get recurring UTIs. And so, I mean, he would, that would cause him to stop eating and stuff. So when he stopped doing that, you know, we didn't suspect that, you know, he was sick because he already had COPD and stuff. And I was thinking to myself, it can be COVID because he's walking around. He's not having respiratory issues. You know, he didn't have a fever. All of the, the signs that they were saying to look for was the, with the COVID. He did not have those. And so I, it, when, it, when he had stopped eating and I was thinking, okay, maybe his throat is sore and he can't tell me and, you know, different stuff like that. But yeah, he did kind of decline. He stopped eating and I, I would give him the insure shake and he would kind of, um, you know, sip off of those. And then he just kept acting like, you know, um, something was hurting him getting it down. And so we were like, well, you know, let's take him to, you know, see ear, nose and throat or just, just take him back to the hospital. But actually when he was in the hospital, they said, oh, his lungs and stuff is clear. You know, he have a little bit of pneumonia and he should be fine. And then he came home and I got up to give him the insurer. He didn't want the insurer. 
And then like he did not make it through the morning, but but like you said, it takes about seven days because it did take about like from the first time I noticed that he wasn't eating, it was about seven to ten days. And then that was just it. Thank you so much for sharing that, Larita. Could you would you mind sharing your father's name? I, I'd like to take a moment to honor him. Oh, Theodore R. Dyson. And he's a, um, he's a veteran from 1950. He served from 1955 to 1957, I believe. Thank you. I wanted to just take that moment to really recognize what you went through as a, and what you're going to continue to go through as a grieving daughter, right? And to think about the healthy food choices, because here's the thing, our modern society does not grieve appropriately they tell themselves there's no wrong way to grieve that's really unhealthy to buy into that because it's so easy to blur the lines between self-care and self-indulgence right and if you think about our ancestors and how they handled things they it's actually very common in a lot of nations that when someone recognized their time was coming to die, they would go off by themselves. They didn't want to burden their families with that experience, right? And, and it's a lot of people don't know that or don't realize that. And it makes sense. I think a lot of us grew up with family members who they wanted to protect us from the burden of things, right? So, but I really appreciate you sharing that experience. And as you're working to be that healthy example in your family of what healthy grief looks like, we can have all of our big emotions. We just got to make good choices while we're dealing with that. So did anybody else want to share? Oh, I see somebody in the comments was, maybe that was Lorita too, um, was saying, we can often, we have food in memory of people because we have memories attached to those meals that we made together. We have memories attached to how much joy and happiness they made when we walked in with their favorite dish. So, let's see. Uh, Kiddo, can you get me some of those other containers and we'll put some of this in there. So, always a good and healthy coping skill. Look how much time it takes to prep meal prep and cut. Um, it's also fun when my daughter helps me. Um, usually we would be having conversations over how to garden and how to care. Now I am not naturally gifted in those areas, but I am super good at looking at the resources near us and we always be sure to whatever community we're in to partake in the community education and show love for the people who keep those community gardens. Um, because we're never in one space long enough to do that. So let's see, where'd you put your, so Alyssa likes to make when we provide food for kids. This is one of her favorite things to do, vegetable kebabs. So, and there's actually, these are actually reusable sticks. So that's fine. She has, let's see, we're going to put some over here. So she has peppers and cucumbers. Oops, the cucumbers fell off this one. We'll put them back on. Nobody has to know, except for your mama has a big mouth. Huh. 
<laughs> so she's made these. These are super fun. Again, just tempting people with small bits of food, but easily something that the kiddos or the adults in this situation can enjoy. So, and these are great for on the road too. So you wanna go ahead and do that. Now she is also um, preparing for her dinner tonight. We're gonna to use some of these vegetables to saute in her dinner, um, but we're going to, she has shrimp. How amazing is that shrimp? Being here in the Gulf Coast, it's really easy. Our neighbors are actually fishermen. So we get to support them in their business and we get fresh shrimp. So that's also very nice. And so with the peppers here, what I've done, I always suggest we're trying to appeal to all the different senses for our caregivers and for our grievers. And so let's see if you can see, look at those colors. Isn't that gorgeous? And we just cut those up into little slices. And then I also like to offer up, I cut peppers like this so that it can be used instead of bread. Because you know, we need to stay away from bread. It's one of those things that we can overindulge so quickly in, right? So if we make things that are easy and accessible and don't take a lot of thinking, people are more likely to nibble on them. And the peppers are gonna help us get some of that fiber that we need while we're being properly hydrated. So there we go. See, do we have any other comments or questions? Oh, I think the sunset's starting to mess with our light. Let's see. We have some comments from Loretta, I see. Um, about, um, I think referring to the kebabs dipping in salad dressing or some other dip, that's a good idea. Also fruit kebabs, that's a good idea too for kids. Um, but I also was wondering, um, just because it's also been brought up a couple times about how, how has um, COVID affected your work lately? Um, I mean, it's something that like has made death more frequent, of course, and but also still a little unpredictable. So again, I'm just wondering how that has affected. Of course. So actually, it's been brilliant in the sense that people are finally willing to talk about it. People are impacted. They can't get away from it, right? If you even think about the workspace, um, well, even before COVID, one in four employees was affected by grief. It's hard to focus on your work when your heart isn't working the same way it did, right? So it's allowed it to be a topic that's less taboo because now everybody has been impacted in one way or another. And people are curious, right? It's kind of like digestive health. Nobody wants to talk about it, but once they find someone who's knowledgeable and willing to be in that space, they're shocked at the things that fall out of their mouth to a perfect stranger. So it's been helpful in that way because we have to shift something in our society 
we have to be able to have these communications, these talks. You know, right now it's it's really disgusting to me what bereavement policies look like in the workplace. To give somebody three days to get it together after they've lost somebody, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. One of um, the people that I've supported um, and I'm going after this large corporation with a vengeance because it just, it's what happens when I get passionate. Um, three days bereavement leave, worked for a major airline and it took seven hours on hold with their HR department to report their spouse's death. She had her AirPods in while she was at the crematorium filling out paperwork. How much undue stress was placed upon her knowing she had to spit out the words, my husband died. To wait on hold for seven hours because she knew her company's policy is it had to be reported within a certain amount of time. While at the same time, having the discussion with the funeral professional, choosing and looking at cremation packages. It's unthinkable. I mean, more progressive companies are giving people three days bereavement when their pet dies. So, it's time that we have some really big conversations with these corporates and employee groups because the good thing about 2020 is this no longer became an HR issue that you just need to manage. It fell squarely on. They're in there with the machines, but they're doing just as Oh, yeah, it, it squarely falls on the chief financial officer now because grievers and not having the proper support in the workplace, it's hitting the bottom line. And we all know when capitalism gets interrupted, that's when we get people's attention. So there's a lot of advocacy work to be done. I actually entered into mourning December 3rd with the transitioning of a family member. So personally, how that changed my career is I am no longer sitting vigil, being that death companion with families. Um, I am taking a full year. You know, I'm out of the dance arena for a full year. And there's many other things that I'm just going to take a full year off of while I heal my mind and my heart. And I just feel like it would be really irresponsible of me to be working with families in that super sacred space. So I work more as a matchmaker. I help educate them on where to find a death worker, how to interview them. Sometimes they just want me to do it. And I set up the interview and the connection. Um, so my work has pivoted more to advocacy and education. So other people can even understand. People understand there's estate planners. People understand there's lawyers to do the will and the medical proxy paperwork. But there's nobody out there doing the social emotional side of it, right? And let's be honest, more people need the social emotional support and help then need the wills and the trusts. You're pretty privileged to have to worry about those things. But everybody, 
is going to bury somebody. Everybody is going to walk into their own death. And so what it's important to have these conversations while we're healthy to say, if I have a choice, this is what I want. This is what I'm hoping for. Um, I'm very vocal in my community and with my family to tell them that statistically I'm going young and I'm going tragically. I've accepted that. I, I understood those statistics when I was early in my 20s. I had two suicide attempts before I was 20 and I had a third when I was 30. So, um, you know, thankful. I'm so thankful that I have 13 years since my last attempt, but I also know statistically when you have so many attempts, you're, you're gonna have more. And when you have more attempts, at some point you're gonna be successful. Right. And so for me, there's a lot of healing when I can openly discuss that within our communities and I can open that sacred space so that people who maybe have only had one attempt, we can reduce their chances of a second attempt. Right. And when we can talk about it and not make it taboo or when we can talk about all that unhealthy grief that's being shoved aside. When we can make a safe and comfortable place to talk about it then we can talk about so many other things and to help support and encourage. So, yeah, and, I, and I'm super passionate about MMIW. Um, I'm hoping to build, if anybody else is super passionate about that. Um, love Clubhouse because it's put me in connection with so many other leaders in all of our communities. Um, you know, developing a network that when a body is recovered, that somebody can be there. A native relative can be there to make sure that body is honored and escorted home. That a native relative can be there to meet the family that comes to identify the body, right? I teach a course on helping people understand you can identify a body without the trauma of seeing the body. And how do we do that? And it breaks my heart that there's a need for this, but, when so many in our community are murdered, we have to think about how can we reduce that secondary trauma to their families. So yeah, it's kind of, and people don't expect all this personality and all this color to be in death, but I think it's what it takes to shake it up and change some things. Yeah, did anybody have any questions about that? We'll take a minute to see it. I'm just going to grab and see if there's anything left on the counters. So my kiddo has been moving stuff around for us as we've been prepping and uh, any last thoughts as we round it out. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see what you're um, making, right? So we've seen you prepping, but what what is it that you're making? She's, so really, it's just having foods ready to go super easy in the fridge. This would be, here, sis, do you want to carry some of this over? So when we first brought everything home, of course, we were, we're lucky enough that we have some blueberry fields and strawberry fields, fields near us so that we do try to buy locally as often as possible. So we took all of these amazing fruits that we will keep for easy access. And then Alyssa made this amazing fruit salad. 
while we were chopping. You can see all of that. And we put those in a variety of containers. We're actually gonna share those with a um, family we know that has a disabled vet that just came home from surgery. We've fun things like cutting up the fruit in different ways. It's the same item, but sometimes you just need to change the presentation a little bit. So we made the watermelon sticks here. And where's our other one? Uh, we have small pieces of watermelon in the fruit salad. And then we have the large pieces of watermelon. I even buy two different types of cucumbers because one day my kids will eat the little ones, one day they like the big ones. Who cares? It's all cucumbers, they need it. So we have some amazing blackberries that came and we'll put some of that in with the pineapple. We also, another thing I like to do that's quick and easy, these are to-go packets. Um, one is a flavored applesauce and then one's a smoothie that's super easy to make. And I think it's important when people think about meal prep, think about the different ways that you can do that. Like if just because you make a smoothie doesn't mean you have to drink it all right then. These are super awesome that you can freeze them and then they can go on the road with you later. Another thing I like to do is use coconut water with any type of fruit to put in the reusable packets. You can put those in the fridge for me, kiddo. And then we have tonight, we're gonna to be using some of the pineapple that she cut up with that fresh shrimp because we are on the Gulf Coast and we are going to honor and remember our loving time in Oahu with that pineapple. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I forgot the, the actual name. We, we, well, was it Malia that taught us the traditional name for pineapple? I don't wanna forget that. Is it Yama, Yamama? Did I say that right? It's called Yayama. It's actually um, indigenous to the islands as well as South America. And um, yeah, the island Arawak people, the people I come from were uh, already cultivating Yayama on the islands when Christopher Columbus reached the shores. And then interesting enough, when the US uh, came to the islands, they transplanted a whole bunch of indigenous Boricua people to Hawaii to cultivate the Yayama plantations. Yes, thank you for sharing that. I always love learning. I also get very mad. I don't know if anybody else has seen this in the Disney uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse books. They have pineapples on trees. It's not how it happens. Don't let our children know such foolishness. My daughter's laughing. She's heard that for years. She knows it ever since I first saw that one, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse has it wrong. <laughs> so, yes. Well, little Miss Alyssa's over here waiting because it's past her dinner time. So she's already trying to get snacky, <laughs> but it's okay. One of the things I try to do as we decolonize our minds is get away from the standard. It is important to sit down and eat and talk as a family. But it's more important to know our bodies and to choose healthy options throughout the day. So my kids are allowed to have whatever they want as long as it's a fruit or a vegetable during the day. And then we do have smaller meals together. So, and we use technology. Sometimes we get a FaceTime with dad. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. We are gonna wrap class.
Um, if anyone has any questions, please be sure to visit. Um, ask Mia if, Mia, would you please put the link to Native Deaf Doula's uh, um, website in the chat, please? Uh, but so make sure you go check her out. Um, you're really active on Clubhouse, right? I know that you and Brooke met one another um, through Clubhouse because Grinding Stone, we do all kinds of programming and Clubhouse is like Brooke's new favorite. And she meets all these amazing people like you on there. Um, Thank you. I do. I do enjoy Clubhouse. I restrict restrict it, but yes. And I didn't do Instagram until Clubhouse. So oh, I saw I, you were on Instagram too. What is your handle? Native Death Diva on there. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I, I joke around. I'm like, I'm a person to person talking. I like, I love a live audience and engaging and, um, but Clubhouse is super fun and addicting. Um, but once you have an addictive personality, it, it, it goes all over. So I have to watch myself everywhere. <laughs> also good for beating Zoom fatigue, which is a real thing, you know, staring at yourself all day. There's implications for that. It's kind of awkward. <laughs> but um, yeah, so thank you to our partners, Ibex Puppetry, uh, Her Many Voices Foundation, Gardening Stone Collective for the support to make First Foods happen. Thanks, Mia, for co-hosting, and thanks to everybody for coming to class this week. Uh, be sure to invite your friends. This is a recurring class that happens every single week. Make sure that you jump onto Clubhouse. Monday nights, Brooke hosts Indigenous Motherhood and Parenting. we got some other stuff lined up for you that we'll continue to announce. Of course, it's all free and um, accessible to everyone. So with that, we'll see you next week. Thank you, everyone. Catch you next time.